Hi in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon. Welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground and mortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is edited and adapted from Sarah Manis. It's called Angels in the Stars. God saw I was getting tired as he put his arms around me, as he whispered, come with me. There is a place for you in heaven where there is no suffering and no pain. All you have to do is look up to the sky and know that you will see me. As I am an angel in the stars, what a great place to be. I am an angel of God and I sparkle and I shall be. Know that I am watching over you. You just look up and see. I'm looking, watching over you. Please don't be sad for me. I'm your angel in the stars where I am happy now. You will see me and one day you will be with me. My guest today is Amy Wright Glenn. She earned her master's in religion and education. She is a birth doula a hospital chaplain, and she's the founder of the Institute for the Study of Birth, Breath, and Death. Amy is the author of Birth, Breath, and Death, Meditations on Motherhood, Chaplaincy, and Life as a Doula, and today I'm talking to her about her latest book, Holding Space, on Loving, Dying, and Letting Go. Amy, what does it mean to hold space for our human journey? Well, first of all, Elizabeth, thank you for inviting me into this conversation with you and to all of you listening, thank you for taking the time to join me as I reflect on on my writing and my experiences working with the dying and the bereaved. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, The term holding space is not a term I created. It's a term that I came across a few years ago when I was reading some work by a Canadian author named Heather Plett. And she wrote a beautiful on her blog entitled something like Holding Space and Eight Ways to Do It Well. And she reflected in that article about the death of her mother and her experience as the daughter and her sister's experience as another daughter as they cared for their mother through her dying. And the palliative care nurse from the hospice that supported these women in loving and supporting their mother. And that nurse she felt held space really well. And so she has these eight experiences or eight qualities of care that that nurse embodied in holding space. So basically, when I read that piece by Plett, I was very moved because of my training as a chaplain in the hospital, my work as a doula with families through birth, and my especially like focused interest on working with families when they're expecting um, miscarriage or have experienced stillbirth or had infant death, infant loss. So I was really drawn to Plett's work and and how it connected to my previous studies. So when I define holding space for me and in my writings and in my work, I consider holding space a compassionate presence to what is. And that could be something beautiful and positive and exciting, or it could be something very difficult and heart-wrenching. But to have the courage to have compassionate presence and be, uh, in many ways, willing to sit with people through some of the most difficult experiences, such as the loss of a baby, and not run from it and not try to fix it and not try to 
distract the person from it, but to really be present with compassion to what is. That's how I would define holding space. Do you find it to be that idea of loving fully in a world of letting go? I think that is a powerful ideal to try to embody. I uh, I do feel it's possible to love deeply. Uh, for myself, sometimes I miss the mark and I don't always love fully. I you know I I do my best to love deeply, and it is a world of letting go. We have, I think, many deaths along the way in one human life, even before the death of the body. There's many deaths or experiences of letting go, whether it's uh, relationships that end or different chapters in life that end, you know, moving from one place to another can feel like a death and birth again. Um, and I, I know people who've had a lot of disability or maybe gone through cancer, some deep treatments that caused physical pain and, and recovery is then in a body that's not the same. That can also feel like the death of some parts of themselves, right? Yeah. So I do think loving fully as much as we can in a world of letting go would be uh, a, hu- a huge human ideal if we can actualize our, our highest ideals. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds good to me too. In your role as a birth doula, as well as a hospital chaplain, how are you able to assist people in loving and teaching them the fact that death is a reality? It's going to happen right away, right in front of their eyes, and that they're ultimately going to need to let go. Well, it's a good question. I most In my work as a birth doula, most births, thank God, is very positive. It has very positive outcomes. So people aren't necessarily thinking about letting go. There, there is, for many moms, the sense of a huge transition from, especially if it's the first baby, from the life pre, they knew pre-baby and then the life post-baby. And for some moms, that can feel like the death of their prior self and this new self-emergence. So I think there's a lot of time I like to spend with families as they think about things might change and what does it mean that this change is happening and, and the love that they will have for this child, but also holding space for, you know, having compassionate presence for what grief might arise too as they transition into new chapters in life. And so I work with a lot of families when they know there'll be uh, fetal death or infant death. And that to me is very powerful and difficult work and that letting go peace. See, the way I approach grief or letting go is very similar to how a man named Alan Wolfelt writes about grief. And he, he's the founder and director of a, a place in Colorado called the Center for Loss and Life Transition. And according to Wolfelt, grief is a natural response to our attachments in living and loving. And and so it's not a patho- pathological experience. It's not something we have to, you know, get over or return to normal, but actually unfolds in us and reveals um, new parts to ourselves. And we're forever changed when the death of people we love occurs. So the letting go is, you know, maybe it's more like reconciling or he uses the word to integrate the, uh, the new experience of loss into the new experience of self because we're changed when people we love die. Elizabeth Heineman wrote in her book, Ghost Belly, Once upon a time, stillborn babies were whisked away from the mothers, and they didn't get to see them. But now hospitals let parents hold their stillborn babies so they can say goodbye. No one seems to understand that first they have to say hello. Mm -hmm. What can you add to this? 
Well, it connects to your earlier question about letting go. You know, I think that the love is what love is the root of grief. And when we love someone, we want to connect first. You know, we want to hold them close. And so when a baby dies in utero and we give birth, I've seen, you know, those pictures and experienced what it's like to be with women when the baby is, they're holding a baby to them that they wished was living but is not living. There is also, that it doesn't mean the love went away. There's still the need to, like, look at the body and say, this is my daughter, this is my son. There's such a love. And when she writes, Elizabeth Hyman writes Ghost Belly, she writes as a mom who did lose her second son to stillbirth. And she, she says, you know, I have the rest of my life to grieve his death, and his death will require the rest of my life to grieve. But right now, this is my time to soak in his presence. This is my time to say hello. So she bathes her son. She sings to him. She holds him. She reads stories to him. She connects to him in the deepest way she can for the time she's with his body knowing that that time is very short and that, you know, she won't have the lifelong memories that she had with her older son. You know, she she has the rest of her life to grieve his absence, but first she wants to soak in his presence. I think that's so beautiful and powerful. Yeah, absolutely is. Through your experience, what have you learned that are some really good ideas of self-care for bereaved parents? Mm. Everyone walks, I, I mean, my experience is that it's so individualized. I and mean, you could have someone from the same faith tradition, the same community, even the same age, um, grieve in very different ways, you know. So everyone's physiological self, I think, will probably experience the range of emotions associated with healthy and normal grief, such as anger, despair, bargaining, acceptance, you know, crying, I'll, and they go in circles. It's not like one's done and then the next, is, you know, it's it's kind of a spiral. So I think most people's bodies carry those emotions. But how it shows up, some folks may be more introverted. Some people would really want community. Some people want a private ritual. I knew a mom who, the way she honored her daughter's death was to take the heart, um, the heartbeat monitor's readout the fetal, the electronic fetal monitor readout of the, her daughter's heartbeat in utero, and and have it that exact kind of um, readout printed and tattooed on her arm, and her husband did the same. So that was their ritual to honor their daughter. They did something very private, just the two of them, but that forever marked them, and they had it drawn up like it was a telephone wire between two poles and a little bird flying off. And that was the way they chose to mark. Whereas I know other people have had pretty elaborate and big, you know, funerals or burials. And so what I would say for self-care would be to really honor one's own intuition about how grief is going to show up and honor that flow and really listen and not try to have other people's expectations um, push a person into forms of mourning, which is, you know, the expression of our grief. That don't feel authentic. We want to have authentic mourning so that the body can move through these feelings and integrate. What was your catalyst to create the Institute for the Study of Birth, Breath, and Dying? Well, that institute came about because I was invited to speak at the um, Midwives Alliance of North America conference a few years ago in St. Louis, and they have an annual conference every year. And I spoke on what people who work in the dying 
can teach those who work with the birthing. You know, and I've done both. So I've worked with the dying and I've worked with the birthing. And this, I'm not a midwife, but I was speaking to a group of midwives, and that was such an inspiring and powerful conversation. I thought, gosh, I really want to bring together professionals in both of these worlds. Like, what would it be like to bring, you know, mental health professionals and birth professionals together with mental health professionals and death and dying professionals all under the same umbrella? What if we created conferences where we all got together? And there are some people who wear both hats like me, but there are some who, you know, primarily focus in hospice, um, but they have taken trainings with me on pregnancy loss because, you know, I had one woman say, I don't work with birth at all, but in my hospice work, when I work with elderly women, sometimes they regress to memories of when their baby had died, and, and I want to know how I can best hold space for that kind of loss that they're remembering as they're facing their own death, right? And so she doesn't do anything with birth, but she's holding space for women who are grieving the deaths of babies, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And, and in the same way, many birth doulas only know healthy birth, but there'll be those times where the unexpected happens and the shocking experience of a stillbirth that no one could see coming happens. How can that doula be prepared to offer, you know, some confidence and connection and breath and love and not be a deer in the headlights too, right? So I, I created that institute because I really wanted to bring together people in the threshold work, the work of those threshold points, so they can learn from each other and cross-fertilize and, and connect and take trainings that relate to each other's work. I'm speaking with Amy Wright Glenn, the author of Holding Space on Loving, Dying, and Letting Go. In your book, you discuss an emergency room where you ran into a woman and there was a language barrier. I love that story, and if you can share that with us. Mm. It's a very powerful story because when I'm called to the trauma bay, I'm usually not going into the actual room. I stand at the doorway, a threshold, and I'm there for family who might show up, and I'm there in case the patient may request my presence. But usually there's so much cacophony and there's so much going on to just try to keep the body alive. I'm there as a witness to that. And if the spouse is there, a child is there, I am holding space for a family that's just in agony and shock as their loved one is getting treated for trauma. But in this situation, the woman came in alone. She'd been in a car accident. She was an Egyptian-American older woman who only knew Arabic, maybe visiting from Egypt. You know, I don't know, but she was in her probably 60s. And she was wearing hijab, which is the traditional headscarf, and she was crying out in Arabic. And I know a little Arabic, having traveled in Egypt and having lived in Jerusalem. And so I recognized the language, and I had studied comparative religion enough to know some phrases of prayer in Arabic that both Christian Arabs and Muslim Arabs use, because that both Christian and Muslim Arabs use the word Allah for God, because it just means God. So I, could, I knew some prayers, and I could just see her really struggling, and no one could speak Arabic around her. And you know, I could hear the doctor saying, if we don't get her to calm down, we'll have to sedate her. And they really wanted to examine her spine. They were worried she might have hurt her spine in this accident. There's no family there. And I did something which I normally don't do. I walked into the trauma bay and asked the attending physician if I could say a few words to help calm her down. And he let me as the chaplain. So I got really close to the bed. I knelt down by her face. 
So we were eye contact, and I was on my knees next to her holding her hand, and I just started to repeat a really popular Arabic phrase that means God is greater. Like, God is greater than this pain. God is greater than this confusion. God is greater than your accident. God is greater than this. And it's in Arabic, it's Allahu Akbar. And I said it over and over and over and over, and it just calms her whole self. And I just held her hand and whispered it in her ear, and she just settled. And then the staff could do what they needed to do to assess her spine without having to sedate her in a state of um, panic. And that, to me, is the work of chaplaincy. And, you know, for me, that was a moment where I was like, this is what I'm, I'm embodying what I was trained to do, which is to show up, meet someone where they're at, and offer a, a compassionate presence to what is and a helpful maybe rope in the storm so she can grab the other end of that rope and know she's not alone. I'm there with her. You have this really delicious quote in your book. It says, prayer provides us permission to hold one another close. Hmm. Tell me more about that. <laughs> prayer provides us with permission to hold one another close. I love it. I that think, idea we can yeah. gather, that idea that yeah. we can be together and it doesn't matter necessarily what you're praying about. It allows us to be together in that same energy. Mm-hmm. And now that's, that's my take on it. I want to hear yours. I, I mean, there's so many dimensions to this. I mean, sometimes it's just my silent prayer in the day for my son while he's at school. And I'm holding him close in my heart, you know. Sometimes it's a way for community to gather and hold hands. And there's the physical closeness as people gather to pray. Um, I find prayer to be a huge part of my own practice. But I have friends who pray in very different ways than I do. They might pray as they walk and they pray when they, you know, are in the mountains. They, you know, so I think it's a way to hold not only each other close, but the parts of ourselves close that we might push away. I, I write about something called hungry ghosts in my book, and these represent the pieces of our own psyche that uh, we don't feed well, that are parts of us like our addictions, our fears, um, our secrets uh, that we put away, and they get hungry for healthy attention. But if we don't give it, they get hungrier and hungrier, and they can kind of you know, be loud, uh, annoying parts of ourselves that are always scratching for attention, and they can be scary. And I think prayer is a way to hold even those parts of ourselves close, to kind of make friends with all parts of ourselves and come home to ourselves, not only with each other, but, you know, to ourselves too. So thank you for lifting up that quote. That is uh, very meaningful to me. Thank you. Oh, you're absolutely welcome, and thank you for your beautiful, full description. I also want another definition of what you were thinking about. You mentioned companioning. Mm-hmm. Okay, so companioning and holding space for me are pretty much synonymous. If you have the Venn diagram of these two terms, it would almost be like the two circles completely overlap. So holding space, again, is an approach to care and to presence that... I define as, you know, compassionate presence to what is. And companioning is the willingness to enter into what is and let the other person who's kind of in the epicenter of grief uh, experience it and know that they're not alone, but I'm not trying to uh, fix it. Or, you know, how do I describe companioning? Uh, Alan Wolfelt is the gentleman who termed, uses that term, and he uses it as an approach to bereavement care that he feels is lacking in the medical model. You know, the medical model sees grief in general as something that can become pathological. 
and something we want to kind of get over and then return to our original, like, normal life. And he feels that model doesn't honor the deep impact grief can have, even for our own growth, and that we never do return to who we were before. We're forever changed, and that when we are companioning a bereaved human being, we're walking side by side. We're not trying to fix. We're not the expert. We're not trying to get them through it quick. It's like, okay, you're taking this journey through the wilderness of your own psyche and heart and mind, but I want you to know I'm standing next to you, and I'm companioning you, I'm holding space for you, I'm present to you. You know, as I was with that woman, you know, I, I, um, I, could, I didn't hold her down. I didn't try to, like, I guess like in some sense I was trying to fix the situation by calming her, but I did that by entering into her world and using a phrase that she probably has said a million times already, and it worked. It was like the, the key that opened the lock just to calm her system. You know, and, and that's, a companion can do that. They can offer that, that hand and say, I'm here. I'm, uh, and my presence can help calm. My he- presence will help you feel like unnecessary suffering can diminish. There, there will be suffering, but the unnecessary suffering we can diminish through companioning. It seems almost hand-in-hand hand with chaplaincy, that idea of you're really holding a mirror back to that emotional storm at hand, mm-hmm. and you're honoring their anger and their grief and everything, mm-hmm. and you're just ultimately being there. And sort of like you say, you're not necessarily even in negotiating or being the moderator. You're just there to be there with your wonderful presence. That's the majority of the work. And people then may ask things of a chaplain that may be different than a doula. You know, chaplains are often asked, will you pray with me? Will you meditate with me? Will you, you know, that, that type of more formal religious or spiritual role not many people will ask that of their doula, their birth doula. But I have written some articles on this spiritual dimension of birth care. And doulas can let their clients know, you know, this is my tradition. And if, and if you feel comfortable, I have, let's say, I have a tradition of meditation. If you would want to meditate with me through labor, or I just want you to know if you want to pray in your labor, that I'm comfortable with that, I'm present for that. And I can either sit with you in silence or join you in that. Just letting birthing moms know that... Spiritual, the spiritual dimension of birth can also be cared for. It's not only a medical event. And for a lot of folks, that feels really freeing because prayer is so powerful. And if they know they can pray in front of their doula and they can use prayer as a part of the birth experience, it can really add a dimension of depth and wonder and beauty that might not have been there if they felt like, oh, I can't show that part of me, you know? I know that hundreds of birth and mental health professionals have taken courses from you online and have gone through your trainings. So you teach online and in person the holding space for pregnancy loss trainings. How does it feel different to do this in person versus through the computer? (laughs) So different, of course. I love people. I want to see their faces. I mean, I love to teach in person the most because I... I feed off that energy, and I like to give out that energy. I just was in Maine last month, and I taught two trainings, one at a midwifery college and then one at a birth center in Portland. And, you know, the people who gather, they're so, they have so much wisdom. And so that's the one thing that I love in person. People share more freely. They can see who they're sharing with. And, you know, you have funeral directors and midwives and OBs or nurses or mental health counselors, fertility specialists, and people from all walks of um, the different angles of looking at bereavement and birth, you know, coming together to take the training. But that doesn't diminish the depth that can happen online. And I've had people take this training who are in Kuwait or who are in 
um, Ireland or, you know, who couldn't easily fly out to Florida or the U.S. to take a training. I've, I have taught it in Europe once. I've been to Amsterdam and I led a training and a bunch of folks came from lots of different parts of Europe, from Portugal and Italy. They came up. But again, that takes resources and cash and it's not always easy to do if you have kids at home and, you know, you, you don't have extra money to travel. So the online work is very important to me and I try to make it as rich as I can, and I do that mostly through email correspondence. So people will take the online training, and then they'll write up their stories and their responses to the work. And I'll tell you, wow, just having spent thousands of hours of my life, you know, hundreds of hours of my life reading through essay after essay after essay from people from all over the world about this topic. I mean, there's times I'm just moved to tears with the stories and uh, and so th- I don't think that that's less, it's just different, you know, to sit down and take an online training at one's own pace in your own home, but then have to sit and really write something about it. That's a very deep work, too. It's more private, but it, it can do a lot of healing work, too. So Amy is a birth doula, a hospital chaplain. She's the founder of an institute. She wrote two books now, and she's teaching her online and in-person pregnancy loss trainings, and yet you still have fine time here to be the lead teacher of the Science and Math Homeschool Support Program in Boca Raton, Florida. How do, how do you do this? <laughs> well, I actually did end up transitioning out of that. So I do have a son who homeschools, but we found a, we, I found a, a program that is a hybrid model where it's home, everyone's registered in the school's homeschool, but you can go part-time or full-time and take courses. So he loves it there, and he goes you know, two or three days a week. So during those hours, I do have more personal time to catch up on emails. I get a lot of emails, and that's probably the one hard piece of doing this. But I, uh, so I don't, I'm not the lead teacher anymore of that homeschool group. I found something that's existing that's wonderful. I can plug my son into it. I can pay them money to take him to go. And then I have more time to build my own programs, you know. But one thing I did do recently is I've been training teachers. So I've trained 12 women to teach the holding space for pregnancy loss in their own communities because I keep getting emails for me to go and teach, and I'm happy to do it, but I don't want to travel so, so much away from my son. Or even if I take him, that's a lot on both of us to like be gone you know, twice a month to different cities. So we usually go once a month. We're going to Hawaii at the end of this month for a week, and I'm teaching there. You know, Once a month we go somewhere, but because the demand was increasing, I thought I really needed train other people to teach this. So I just completed a training and graduated 12 people through the Institute to be authorized to teach the work I teach. And I'm so excited for that. And I really hope it builds because I think this kind of training could be taught in every city, even a few times a year. It's a perennial topic. There will always be families suffering from this kind of grief. And I think we need people who are really skilled in healthy ways to hold space for this. In closing, I want to read this wonderful review for your book. It comes from Tina Cassidy, the author of Birth, The Surprising History of How We Are Born. She writes, This book is like a superhero, showing us how to run bravely toward the darkness and come out the other side as a human being. Amy teaches us and deserves praise for writing a gorgeous, clear prose and gives deep thanks for creating a gentle guide we all need and that one thing no one escapes, death. My guest today has been Amy Wright Glenn. She is the author of Holding Space on Loving, Dying, and Letting Go. 
You've been listening to KKPZ 1330 AM, The Truth. Until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.